The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on News Talk 1493 FM. You're invited to join the program by calling 217-356-9397 or send a text on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line 217-351-5357. Opinions and views expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and not necessarily those of the station. And now, On the Money with your host, Paul Rudy. Well, a good Happy New Year to everybody out there listening today. I know we're probably surprised a few folks, I think, uh, and the radio station was gracious because usually we don't do. As I look back, they were rightfully not expecting us to come in today. We're usually vacationing or something like that. Darn Omicron, you know. So right. anyway, I appreciate them accommodating us today and uh, and allowing us to do our show, So, we're, which we're happy to do. And it's always... Going into the next year is always kind of an interesting environment, and we'll talk about that today. So I'm here with my regular guest, Dr. Fred Gertz. Dr. Fred, how are you? Fine. Good to be here. And uh, I'm not sure your mic is on very well. It's on, but uh, a little closer there. Yeah, it's better. Uh, And, of course, I have certified financial planner professional Ryan Repco with me. Ryan, good morning. Good morning. And uh, David was scheduled to be here today, but, oh, some... (laughs) About <laughs> a dozen days ago, he came down with, I think it's the new strain, the Omicron. So we've all been pretty careful in our, who we've been around. So we're all beyond the waiting period at this point. I uh, hope everybody else out there is staying safe <laughs> this yeah. year. Safe and confused. Safe and confused. And we'll talk about some of those confusions. You can call in with your questions to 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling text line at 351-5357. You can also email your question to talk at wdws.com. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own due diligence. Well, guys, uh, you know, Fred, for our industry, you know, Ryan and I and, and then my son's. You know, we're always getting ready for all the pundits to tell us what's going to happen next year. Of course, you know, they almost all get it wrong. Um, and we've we've certainly talked a lot about in the last couple of years about the COVID crisis and and how it really reinforces, I think I, it's safe to say, all of our beliefs in markets and that mm-hmm. markets work and, and in the, in the, over our lifetime, they have a positive expected return. And I think it was a classic lesson in, you know, markets can't be timed or economics, economies can't be forecasted. And and just to have that faith in human ingenuity and the ability to solve big problems. I, I think that is the story of the last couple of years. And that's always been my view. It's an optimistic view, but um, it's always, you know, when you have people's lives in your hands, as we do as financial advisors, um, we have... A large number of families who their financial lives, let's put it that way, are in our hands, and it's 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 always nice to be optimistic, see the returns and the money that you've made for these people, and recognize it's just because of it's just a fundamental optimistic belief that markets work. Right, but you also have to believe that you can't uh, can't guess what they're going to do. Uh, for example, with the uh, pension fund I'm involved with. Everyone expected 2020 after the crisis to be yeah. really bad. 
it turned out to be really good. So the advisors say, well, don't expect next year to be so good right, because right, right. you already captured all the all the good things in 2020 you didn't expect. So nothing good is going to happen in 2021. And that was just the opposite. Now, obviously, I didn't think that was unreasonable at the time, but yet uh, you don't want to act on it. Well, I think that's that's correct. I mean, we I always like to say markets don't have a memory. Yeah. Um, and trying to figure out your markets change their prices on a day-to-day basis uh, based on uh, good and uh, new news, which obviously you can't know ahead of time. Um, but, you know, you go back to March of 2020, which seems like a long time ago, but th- there was a lot of panic in the financial markets for sure. And, uh, you know, when the stock market's suddenly down in a matter of a couple of weeks, 20% plus, um, that, that was pretty scary for people. But I think it was a lesson that we can't control the crisis but we can control our responses to them. And I think, I think that's, you know, the last couple of years has probably just been a master class on, on taking that to heart and, you know, remaining optimistic and remember markets don't have a memory and nobody knows. And that means, and, and I mean, just think about that. Nobody can tell you what's going to happen over the next block of time. Right. right. So in regard to uh, the idea uh the best estimate of where the market's going to be tomorrow is where it is today, but it's almost never right. there the next day. So your best estimate is almost always wrong, but at least it's probably better than the uh, other guesses. Yeah, I just think uh, it's just interesting to see how, um, you know, if you have this view of of markets in the end, or just it's just a matter of people coming together and making decisions. and uh, And it's that coming together, I think, is the part that, you know, that's so powerful. And, uh, you know, markets are look, are forward-looking, I think. And, yeah, and I think that's why I think people in the last couple of years are bewildered that the stock market could be at all-time new highs, literally, as of yesterday. And yeah, I well, think today well, it's continuing With, through all this mess. And, it's again, it's because markets – you've always said it, Fred. Markets are always looking forward. Right. And if you really – if you look backward and, and draw the one conclusion that – Markets are just people coming together and, and, and trading in a basis where the price seems to be fair to both people. I mean, if, if stock trades today, uh, one person thinks it's over, you yeah. know, maybe it's time to get rid of it, and the other person thinks it's a fair price, and the market's clear. Right. Uh, so. and, but you could ask, uh, who, who explained yesterday ahead of time? I don't think anyone did. <laughs> uh, and yet there's all kinds of explanations today about why, why it happened. Right. I mean, my explanation, since you asked for it, <laughs> is I follow short-term interest rates. And you could, I think the Santa Claus rally, I think, has a new hero, and I think it's Jerome Powell. And when and I think I have this real cynical view that the largest banks in the Federal Reserve are in communication of some format. And I think when you see the short-term interest rates go down two-tenths of 1% in the morning and throughout the day, that's my guess of that's. I think that's Jerome Powell saying we're not going to allow any big declines right now. That's right. just my theory, but I think you know, I think enough whispers of the people that are actually getting that information that can really on a given day drive markets. Well, there are ways of signaling. We uh, people know from antitrust that no, very few firms simply collude, but they give signals to each other, and the signals are understood. This is probably the the same kind of thing. Yeah. And one thing I'm always thinking about, too, when we're investing at times that the market's high or has been high for a while, has been seemingly just uh, progressing upward, is that markets don't die simply from old age, meaning they're not just 
bound to go back down, which is what I think there's a very common feeling of for a lot of investors that, oh, now is not the time to get in. The market's been high or has stayed high. There's an inevitable, in their words, you know, correction or there's an inevitable pullback. Almost like if, if what goes up must come down. Certainly. And, and, and that's not the case, although in some you know, instances that seems intuitive with gravity, what goes up must come down. There's no bearings in the financial markets that just because the, the stocks or the, the tickers you follow are at all-time highs or near them, they must go down in any short order. In the end, we always have to bring ourselves back to what is the stock? What is a mutual fund that I own thousands of stock shares in? It's just the, the ownership of an individual company or in a mutual fund or an ETF thousands of companies in one fund. Right. And the whole point of, of owning these is that we want to share in the uh, individual ownership uh, and the dividends and interest maybe of bonds of the companies we own. Um, and these are not just abstract casino rides that are up and down and up and down swinging. Um, they're, they're actual fractional ownerships. And when we remember that, then we think, well, there's no reason that all of our investments must go down simply because they're up. It, that, you know, on its face just doesn't even make any sense. But it's what the pervasive, I think, feeling is, is that, well, it's high. I'm just going to hold off because in my mind, it's going to go down soon. Because here we are at the doorstep of 2022. We're at all-time new highs as of yesterday, and today is continuing. But yet, at the same time, record highs make you know many people nervous. And uh, it's just an interesting phenomenon. I think, yeah. And I think the way I think of things... Um, Again, I think they, that comes from a, what goes up must come down. And I think about it is that's what markets that are working do. That's what you would expect from them. They should reach record highs with some frequency. Um, I just, to me, that's the outcome I would expect from time yeah. to time. Because as the economy, right, Fred, at least historically, is, I mean, it, it plods along at two or three or four percent, you know, on average somewhere yeah. around three percent, I think, over the long term history. Maybe that's changing. And so to me, that just represents this permanent uptrend of advancement, of ingenuity, of solving problems, uh, and markets being re re relatively fair. Right. And but I, I guess I'm saying what you usually say, though. You're talking about the long term. Oh, I'm talking about lifetime. Right. Because, again, uh, markets don't die of old age. And the same thing was said for expansions uh, don't die of old age. But they, they do die or at least get wounded by uh, accidents and things that happen. So, again, lots of things can happen both for the economy and, and the uh, equity markets uh, in the near term. But in the long term is what, what I think really people have to think about. Yeah, I think stock markets making new highs make intuitive sense because stocks have a positive expected return. And if they didn't, you know, then nobody would invest in them. Yeah. And, so, and here's just something else, Ryan. Let me just uh, – you know, I – I've talked about how when the Dow reached 10,000, I told people it would go to 30,000. And lately, I've been telling people, well, don't worry about the next few thousand points. Worry more about missing the next 60,000 points. Because I think over the next 20 years, the Dow's likely at 90,000 or above. Again, nobody should go out and invest based on Paul's theory. But when you start thinking about that, going from 10 to 20 is harder than going from 20,000 to 30,000 and mm -hmm. going from 30 to 40 and so on. And so it doesn't take a huge stretch of imagination to think, you know, that still in my lifetime, I'll see the Dow at 90 or 100,000. It's, it's never a lock. But when I seem to mention that to people, it seems to calm them down. It calms the today that, uh, their, their today person 
calms them down a little bit, gives them that perspective like, yeah, it probably will be, so maybe I shouldn't struggle with this, that we do have this. I've always seen the stock market as same as the economy. It's in a permanent uptrend, and there will be some severe and vicious declines from time to time. But as long as we still have this permanent uptrend, they're going to turn out, as they all have been, temporary and they eventually go back to not only where they were but to higher than anybody can expect yeah it, i think it's always just a matter of ref, refocusing your view what are you focusing on and for most people your human nature focuses on the the here and the now whether that's you know one month one year two years three years the very immediate time that we're in rather than taking a step back zooming out like a, a thirty thousand foot view from an airplane and saying okay if i take a step back and i'm looking not at you know the short term of months and years but in decades, yeah. periods of decades, the entire uh, conversation and the, the realization of what you're worried about changes because then you start to realize, well, if I'm not living for just a period of months or years and I'm really, really investing and in living for periods of decades, I don't have to have the, the concerns and worries that are maybe blasted at me every moment I turn on the TV or the radio or the newspaper um, because those things filter out. They, they water out in the end when you, when you zoom out. And then that permanent uptrend asserts itself if history is any guide. Yeah. So, oh, you know, I'll, to me, and again, this isn't us saying, by the, as an aside, listeners, um, us saying because of our optimism and, and based on the fact that, you know, uh, I, I like to go, I like to side with the ingenuity of humanity. And I think that's why we invest in, we always say the markets, but I like to then also say the great companies of America and the world. So it's, we're not suggesting that this is uh, advice that everybody needs to run out and be 100% invested in the stock market. Um, we recognize that, you know, when you are in retirement, very few people should have all of their money or most of their money invested in such an unpredictable asset class in the near term because suddenly we're, we're not accumulating any longer. We're decumulating. We're spending not only some of our return but some of the capital appreciation along the way. Um, so we, I always like to, you know, make sure that we couch it within that mm -hmm. too. But and one other aside that, um, if you thought you were just right a year ago, you're probably not just right today. So you might want to think about, uh, some rebalancing as well. Yeah. I think, uh, since we're going into the new year, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, is, is it, how many times do you think you generically rebalance this year? Uh, a couple times, couple maybe. of times. Yeah. And what we're talking about is, okay, I, Ryan, um, we decided at the first of the year that I would be half of my money would be invested in the great companies of America and the world, and half would be owned uh, would be invested in bonds, and so we'd be lending money to these great companies of America and the world, along with the go government of the U.S. and other governments. So a fifty-fifty mix: fifty percent stocks, fifty percent bonds. So a couple of times this year, so you have to have some type of governors, of, you know, some mechanism of saying, okay, well, if that's the appropriate portfolio for our goals and needs and wants, obviously we've chosen not to be 80% stocks for mm -hmm. that for a specific reason. Um, how far do you let it, to, in a generic sense, how, that's from that stock market mix, how far do you let it get out of bounds before you do the rebalance? So we'll allow it to drift up 5%. So if you're supposed to be 50% stocks, we won't intervene until the stock portion grows to be 55% or above of your total holdings. And same thing on the downside, 5% below. Um, that's our decision. You know, you, you could have other reasons for rebalancing sooner or later. 
Uh, we just think that's appropriate. What we're just trying to avoid, of course, is intervening too often. Right. And then you're almost like timing the market instead of just and just incurring a lot of extra trading costs potentially with what you may hold. Uh, allowing your portfolio to have a, a relatively narrow range of 10% above or below the five, five above, five below your target. Okay. So for most of our clients, you know, once in a year might be what we'd expect Typically. of a rebalance. This year we had seemingly upward progress throughout the entire year with very little interruption. Um, and so it's been kind of a rebalance effect all on the positive side. So we're, what, what most people will probably be surprised to do is say, well, the, the stocks are doing really well. What we're doing is selling those stocks when they're, they've performed above that uh, threshold that we've crossed, so that 5% above the target, and buying in back into bonds. And you say, well, why would you do that? Why would you sell the good stuff to buy the bonds? The whole intent is that we're not trying to time the market. We had defined in the first place an acceptable uh, investment allocation that's based on funding a lifestyle of goals and uh, needs in retirement based on a financial plan. And we just need to make sure that that investment Stocks and bonds combined stays within that narrow range. And once we exceed that range, we're not exactly tracking towards the plan anymore. So it's just a simple strategy to say, well, I'm abiding by a plan. I'm not abiding by the headlines in the news and choosing to just rebalance because I choose or I want to. It's based on a plan, and that's you know how the, the portfolio is managed. So it's a disciplined process. You say, look, we have rules, and we follow the rules. Yep. And those rules have served us and our clients very well over time. Sometimes they get mad at us a little bit. Why did you rebalance? Because it, you know, it just kept going up. Uh, but a lot of times it works the other way as well. We're, you know, half the time we're mad we rebalance, and half the time we're probably happy and, about it. And, and your fifty-fifty was just illustrative. I mean, oh yeah, that exactly. was just a, just an example. I mean, so most people probably are not fifty-fifty in your. Yeah, when I look at our assets at Rudy Wealth Management, um, I just looked at them. I think this morning. And you can tell me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but it looks to me like 70 cents out of every dollar is invested in the great companies of America and the world, what some call the stock market. So it's a little beyond, I know it's beyond 60%. It may not be as high as 70. Yeah. That, is that, that'd is be that kind of your read? Yeah. Without ever doing any reporting, I would say that would be like my guesswork is around the 60 something range, 60 something. So maybe two thirds, somewhere in that neighborhood would be close estimate. Yep. That would be my best guess. So that gives people – but there's a pretty good distribution. We have – we do have some clients that are in their mid to upper 80s that are almost 100% stocks because they're investing for a completely different reason. They're not spending any of the money. It's going to go to multiple generations down the road. And we have some people that are, you know, are predominantly bonds and fixed income producing assets. So there's a pretty good dispersion around that average. So we're not a – you walk in and everybody gets a sticker, hey, I'm – I'm in that 60-40 portfolio, <laughs> right. 60% stocks. Exactly. There's so many so many articles about the 60-40 portfolio. I, I get a little bit tired of reading them. I think there's this presumption that that's kind of the one-size-fits-all portfolio. And it's, re- it's rarely the case that everybody should have, you know, people shouldn't have the same portfolios just because. Right. You know, it's all based on what you want out of retirement. How, you know, how long will you be living in retirement needing to be drawing down from your assets? Do you have a pension uh, income stream? Are you receiving Social Security? All, all these other forms of income that give you the ability to either take less from your portfolio if need to or just add to it. Um, so there's so many decisions that go into how do I invest, and it's unique to each person. So. Yeah, certainly for you know, people that like 100% secure well, for instance, some people will, they just really don't want to have anything to do with the 
unpredictability in the near term of the stock market. And so they'll go out and they'll buy uh, an immediate annuity, a life annuity, where it pays them. They exchange a lump sum of money for a fixed income payment. Um, people have probably noticed after 30 plus years on the show, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of that strategy. I'm not against it. And, and I, at times I do recommend it, but it's rare. It's, this is the type of environment is what, about, what has always worried me. Maybe I'm irrational, Fred, but it's like when you have 6 or 7% inflation and maybe yeah. it's conceivable we could have that for a few years. I'm not making a prediction. You know, having all of your money in a fixed income that doesn't go up each year by any uh, means at all, you're suddenly you're going backwards in your lifestyle. Right. You don't hear much about the old rule. The, the old rule is – uh, subtract your age from a hundred, and then that would be your equity. So, yeah. so with someone who's eighty, we'd have twenty percent equity and eighty percent bonds. But as you said, if if that person is comfortable and not not worried, that's exactly the the wrong strategy. Yeah, we always take the view: look, when it comes to asset allocation, let's not risk what we have and need for what we don't have and don't need. And so, it looks like we have a call coming here. It's got John, I'm going to have to reach over here. John, I'll be right with you. Sure. Oh, yes, John. I guess they did it for me. How are you, sir? <laughs> I'm here. Happy New Year. I'm fine. How are you? I'm doing Happy great. Happy New Year to you. Um, you uh, got me to retire years ago and never uh, regretted it. Thanks for the help. Okay. I have a question about Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. Okay. So I own those as part of my portfolio, uh, and I, in my mind, they're comparable to my uh, corporate bonds. And if I was going to uh, reallocate, my TIPS fund just crushes my corporate bond funds. Why wouldn't I just have TIPS instead of corporate bond funds? Uh, they're pretty safe, are they not? Well, I mean, it, look, they're, they're not safe or, or they're either appropriate or, or not appropriate for what one's goals are. So when it comes to TIPS, it depends on what your maturities are. The reason it might be getting a lot of that so certainly there's a lot of people that want inflation protection. And there's a lot of things. There's been a lot of wind behind tips, for sure. For somebody to go out now, you're going out. But the same could be said for short-term high-quality uh, bonds. You know, it's interesting. You have to pay up about a dollar seven or eight to guarantee that you'll get back a dollar of real uh, money, you know, depending on your maturity. So I don't have a – I don't have – there's times where tips have been extremely attractive, where their base rate was – you know, quite high. Right now, I don't know. I, I haven't done a lot in the tips area. I like short-term, high-quality uh, income that could certainly be produced uh, with tips. So I don't have a strong opinion one way or another on them. I'm not, I'm not sure that I would conclude that the long-term expected return for a treasury inflation-protected security is as high as a corporate bond fund. I think right. you'd find out historically, if we had a long history of treasury inflation protected securities you'd you'd probably find that the that the uh, expected return and the historical return for corporate bonds depending on maturity are probably a little bit higher there there is a kind of asterisk here uh there was an article a couple of weeks ago in the wall street journal by uh, burton malkiel who's the kind of the uh, one of the guiding lights about uh, passive investment but he had kind of a tip and the tip was that uh you can buy a, a small amount of inflation invested bonds through I bonds that actually guarantee seven percent for the next six months. So there are very few deals like that around. Right. Uh, but it's only limited to relatively small. Not, I mean, not small, but not 
large amounts. Uh, so you can buy $10,000 this year, $10,000 next year. So you buy it today and buy it a week from now. You could have 20. And if you have a, a couple, you could buy 40 and you get 7% guaranteed for the next six months, which is pretty unusual. And again, you, you have to keep it for a while to make sure you don't have any interest penalty, but it is a, is a option. The, the downside, which I found is that, uh, you have to order on online, which is Treasury Direct, which I have labeled the, the website from hell because it's almost impossible <laughs> to navigate. But so, but, but if you want to take a few hours, you could probably uh, buy some of those. But it's only up to um, you know, ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Yeah. So, I, John, I'd be somewhat indifferent between the two if that's your pleasure. Uh, but but I suspect that over one's lifetime. I would expect corporate bond returns to be higher than the trade, just from a risk and return story, right? Corporate so debt is riskier. Balanced portfolio. <laughs> it's a balanced portfolio as usual. Yeah, I, I and frankly, probably it's because I don't spend a lot of time thinking about fixed income side. You know, uh, yeah. so I, I've reduced my philosophy. I want it to be short term because you really don't get compensated for going much past five years. Doesn't mean I wouldn't own a bond that isn't more than five years. And I like really high quality because I don't think you get enough compensation for the risk you take for buying low quality bonds. Uh, And that has served me well over my 38 years. But uh, I think whether a person uses, as long as they use tips or high quality short term or intermediate term corporate bonds, you're going to be good either way. And I don't, I don't think your one's lifetime outcome is going to move one much one direction or the other based on the choice between those two asset classes. And you can't look at your past returns. If you bought tips five years ago, they're probably doing pretty well right now. Well, they've now. shot the lights out. But, yeah. but you, you yeah. can't buy those five years ago. You have to buy them today. And as you said, they're priced in a different way now. Yeah, the way they're priced today, I, I would be a, I'd be a coin flip as to which way I, I, I went. But you're right, John. The last, well... You can almost fill in the blank number of years. Treasury inflation protected securities have been wonderful. Okay, well, thank you very much. All right, thanks, John. See, we make some people happy, Fred. <laughs> we make some people happy. Uh, let me go back to uh, what, what we were thinking of. So one of the things I wanted to cover today, um, I think it was uh, Transamerica did a giant study about retirement. And I highlighted a few issues because it kind of resonates with what I'm hearing on a day-to-day basis. Um, Most cite uh, positive word associations with retirement. 86% of workers cite positive word associations with retirement compared to 44% who cite negative words. I thought this was the part that was more interesting than that fact was the workers' top three positive word associations are freedom, enjoyment, and stress-free. And so I think that's how a lot of people view retirement. I think that's what they're really looking to do is control their time and have, in other words, that freedom is I'm free to choose how I spend my time as opposed to somebody telling me to do that. Um, Stress-free, that's 37% of people, you know, (laughs) expect it to be stress-free. You know, retirement, it can and can't be, well, I'll tell you what I was going to say. It can be as stress-free as you want, and you can you can go out of your way to make it more stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, but towards the end of the study, I realized it, it went on to say one-third of the people in the survey have a written financial strategy for retirement. Uh, and, and I don't care what anybody says. I think having retirement security requires having a well-defined financial strategy. I don't know about you guys, but I think so. 
Uh, most workers, 76%, have some form of financial strategy for retirement, but only 33% have a written plan. Well, if you don't have a written plan, yeah, that, sure. that, that I don't believe the 76% have a plan because if it's not written, it's not a plan. Or That's a, been my experience. Or it's a plan that changes from day to day. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think we'll go to Rick. Uh, I got a stretch here. Oh, there we go, Rick. Good morning. Good morning. How hey, are you? Uh, I have an IRA. Yes, sir. I'm divorced. Okay. And if I uh, have uh, my daughter as a beneficiary, okay. well, they, uh, w- when she gets that, uh, will she just take over the uh, the same account and, and each year have uh, money uh, earnings, uh, you know, from the stock market? You know, the mutual funds based on okay. the stock market uh, funds that are, are held. Or will she just get a check for X number of dollars and then she does it what does what Got she it. wants with it? Got it. So, Rick, to answer the first question, your daughter, uh, being the beneficiary, would have a new account open her name. It would be an IRA. She would be the the new inherited IRA owner. So, just from a simple blocking and tackling, she would, in essence, inherit your account, but it would be a new account with a new account number in her name. Um, and then the second question: How is the the Funds going to be distributed to her. That will be up to her. Um, it will not yeah. just automatically come out. The new tax law states that uh, she would have to distribute the funds within ten years. So it could be zero dollars years one through nine, and then the entire IRA balance has to come out by uh, year ten. Uh, that would generally be ill-advised because that would have a giant uh, income year, and it would just put all of those dollars taxed at a uh, most certainly taxed at a much higher tax rate than had she taken them out in piecemeal year by year. Um, and so one simple strategy would be to look at her, uh, her current tax rate today based on all income sources, estimate uh, if she were to take out a lump sum in one year to pay down any debt or pay off a, a home mortgage, how that might impact taxes, and then uh, an alternative, instead of taking lump sum, just doing an even amount um, over 10 years taking so a distribution. That, so that- so that uh, that amount that's left to her, where well, she opens up the uh, a new ac- account in her name, within ten years, that has that account has to be empty. Then correct. Okay, she. Uh, yeah, that changed about. Okay, uh, well, uh, she can disperse it anywhere she wants. She could buy a new car, or could she buy uh, put money into that same mutual fund account that it was given to her so she can't contribute into the inherited IRA so it can only be the funds inherited from your account in that one uh, but she could buy anything that she wants with it so there's no restrictions on what can be spent out of that account okay okay let's just say for example uh, I have 95% in American funds mm-hmm. uh, so that that all that money would go to her or the, the, that American fund account even though it's opened up in her name, would would go to her. Correct. And that that first year, could she open up or or buy uh, new of into course. American funds? She she could she could buy and sell within the IRA without actually receiving the funds. So without taking a distribution of dollars out of that IRA, she can buy or sell yeah. within the IRA. If she said, you know, I don't like American funds, I like somebody else, and you, she could sell well, all the funds. Well, she better because I, I, I'm telling her what, <laughs> you, what's best. You're giving best. the advice. Hey, if, my, yep. if my IRA is earning me 17% a year, I'm a, she's stupid if she's going to put it in a bank at, uh, at three-fourths of a percent interest per year. 
So she she's a little bit smarter than that. Well, good. Yeah. You schooled her well. Uh, I would expect that 17% would be an odd year. Uh, she should, you know, depending on the asset mix, reduce that by half or more for a normal uh, you know, long term spectrum. So exactly. he, clearly, he could have easily earned over the last 10 years 17% a year, but one's long term lifetime expansion, uh, expected return would probably be 10 to 12%. But that's still his if point. It's all stocks. I still think his point's valid, Rick said, but it, it's compared to putting that in a, a CD or, a, well, or I'll cash. I'll tell her the same thing I was told that I could take 4% out of that account every year and the balance would never go down. Well, historically, that would have been the case. I don't think anybody should suggest that yeah. that couldn't end up with a bad outcome, but it's certainly a reasonable guideline, and, I, and I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. yeah. And under the new yeah. tax rules. Okay. You know. So she'll have a lot of flexibility. She can pretty much do whatever she wants with it, including spending it to to investing well, it the her, same her, way. Her husband, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, they, well, she's got yeah, a nice dad. Well, good. I told her one time when she bought her first car, I said, when you get that car paid off, that $350 a month payments you're making for that car, you put that in the savings account, and you can keep keep putting money every month in there just like he's making a car payment, only you're making it to yourself. Yep. So when you're ready to buy another car, you can probably go out and buy pay cash for the damn thing. Yeah, well, that's, <laughs> that's priceless advice, and uh, you have a very lucky daughter to have a mentor yeah. such as yourself. Uh, question okay, for Ryan. Thank you so All much. right, thank you. I think you have to be very careful about titling the account. You can't just take it for granted because if you don't do it right, yep. you can. So generally, what happens when you when you are the beneficiary of an IRA that um, the the previous benefit the previous owner of the account uh, passes away, that's retitled in the new beneficiary's name, and it actually should say in the account titling, you know, if it's me, Ryan Repco, comma inherited IRA. So it's titled as an inherited account. You know in, in, in an inherited account you can't put contributions in. If you do that, then you have a very big tax issue. I think you have to then take out like all of that, the account within a very short period of time. Um, so any inherited IRA, consider as no contributions. Just be you know keeping mindful of the clock of that 10 years. You have to distribute everything out of it. Another trick is uh, if you're not contributing to an IRA now, what you could do is to take out money from the inherited IRA, pay the tax on that, and then uh, either out of your salary or out of, out of a contribution, then uh, fund another IRA, which would basically neutralize the, the, the change. Yep, certainly. So it's a real, a real you know, simple yet smart strategy to allow yourself to do that So when you're forced to take those out. All right. On the text line, Happy New Year to you. Well, thank you. Uh, is it better for an 80-year-old widow, so a single 80-year-old who is still working for the state of Illinois. Look at that, Fred. Gosh, Fred. You'll probably be still working at age 80. Who knows? Uh, She has a retirement fund with more than a million dollars. Wow. Wow was my editorializing, by the way. Uh, Is it better, she has a million, is it better to retire normally or quit and withdraw her retirement in a lump sum? I think what she's saying is, do I take the pension or do I take the lump sum here? In the former case, upon her death, the state keeps the leftover retirement funds. In other words, you, she gets, well, you're trading an income for life. If she lives to 120, she would still get that pension. Uh, but if you die the next day, uh, typically, poof, that's it. Uh, in the, so in the latter case, so if she keeps the lump sum, she pays for her own health insurance, but leftover money goes to her children. Well, there's no pat answer to this, okay? So my suggestion would be, and then Ryan, Ryan you could wait in is 
first of all, you have to recognize that if you go talk to any financial advisor, there's an inherent conflict of interest. Now that can be managed. I've had to do that. I've had to manage that. And so, but the best way I found is to give people the information so that they are making the choice. You're not, you're not really advising them on which one. And so what would you do, Ryan? Just run a scenario. Here's mom's life and here's life expectations. You can look at different, you know, longevity issues. Like uh, maybe she lives to a hundred or maybe 90. What would the impact be? You would probably run two or three, but the basic side-by-side scenarios would be, here's what life looks like. If you live to a normal life expectancy or longer, and you take the pension versus here's this, here's what your life would look like if you pay for your own health insurance, which isn't terribly expensive now at 80, you're on, you're going to be on uh, Medicare. Uh, but you put those side by side. And I think the answer ultimately becomes obvious uh, to the person looking at it. Yeah, for, for most people, they just look at it and say, well, I choose option A because of fill in the blank, or I choose option B because fill in the blank. Some people, they say, you know, I hate the idea that I worked all these years, and if I, I retire today and I no sooner retire than a week later I pass away, the government takes all that pension I worked so hard for. My family gets none. Some people, that's just their inherent issue. So they'll, ne- they'll never really want to take the pension if they have those strong, strong feelings. Other people say, I want that stability. I worked hard for that money. I want that earned, guaranteed inflation. Uh, in this Adjusted, case, yep. she's probably a SERS employee, Could uh, be. maybe. Um, so it's probably got a, a decent cost of living adjustment. I want that and that protection. And it just comes down to the person. But all we've done is simply say, we just want to give you the ability to make that choice with yep. accurate information. I, I think that, <clears throat> again, if this is a SERS. Do you have a gut reaction for it? Yeah. Uh, if this is a SERS employee, I think you need to uh, get some advice, both from a financial advisor and from right. SERS. Uh, if you're a self-managed plan, sir, again, I, I'm not giving you advice. I'm giving right. you advice about how to get advice. But anyway, if you're a member of the self-managed plan in SERS, something changed very dramatically the last year or so where you're allowed to have a partial annuitization right. and still maintain your health care so you can have maybe the best of both worlds if you if you tailor it correctly. And that's if it's SERS, but she might work for another area yeah, of the like, state where yeah. it's under a, a different system. So the best advice is have somebody run the analysis that doesn't sell products uh, and taste both of them. Sometimes it comes down to, even if one's mathematically clearly better from a personality and psychological strategy, somebody still may choose the um, non-optimal choice. We're going to go to Ben on line one. Happy New Year, Ben. Hey, Happy New Year, guys. Thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Questions for you. 60 years, 60 years old, wife's in her late 40s. Okay. Um, I'm looking at when I'm going to retire. So she and I are having a discussion about what is it you feel is the proper amount of money to actually retire. Let's say you're a person who currently lives in the six-figure range. Okay. Um, if, you, if you want to try and kind of keep the same lifestyle, what do you project someone 65, 68 years old should have to make that happen. Okay. As well as to think about your wife is younger than you. How do you make sure that's taken care of as well? So to the first Thanks. issue, okay, uh, we'll, we'll talk about this you know, for the next uh, five or ten minutes. Uh, it's a big issue. Of course, that's the main question people have. I mean, there are some simple back-of-the-envelope ways to do it, so I'm not going to tackle the younger wife issue yet if 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 Len walked in 
uh, you know, by himself, I'd say, well, what income streams are you going to have at a particular age? Well, I, I'll, Paul, I have Social Security that's two thousand a month, so we'll call that twenty-five grand a year, and uh, and that's it. And so, and, and well, then I would say, all right, well, forget about what your gross salary and income is. By the time you put money in healthcare and four hundred one ks, and how much is actually going to your bank account, and are you is that working in your world? So let's suppose someone says, you know, I'm I'm making a hundred grand a year, but after everything, my take home is uh just pick a number, six thousand a month. So I need seventy two thousand, or else to say seventy five thousand. And they have twenty five thousand in Social Security. They got to come up with fifty thousand a year of lifetime income. That's going to have to keep up with the cost of living in some format. Uh, so I would take that and say, uh, you know. I don't know, Ryan. Uh, well, I don't know what number you would use. Well, if you're looking at just like a simple 4% withdrawal rate, which again, okay. it's never just the, the answer for everyone, but it's a starting point. You, and you need to develop $50,000 worth of portfolio-driven yeah. income. Right. You would need a, a rough a balance of $1.25 million in your savings you know, investment account. 401ks, IRAs, all, all combined. So I'd, I'd say somewhere probably between a million and a million two fifty on the high end, a million on the very low end may not may not quite cut it, but it starts to narrow it in. It's not 500,000. Right. You're at a million one, million two probably yep. to get that 50,000. For someone at 60 uh, who has probably 30 years to look at. Now, that's going to be a fundamental answer, you know, question to a f- answer to a fundamental question. Now, when you have a wife, say, is 15 12, years, yeah. 12 or 15 years younger, now you have to think about, okay, what does the spouse bring to the table as far as income streams? And you got to start combining this then into a master plan mm-hmm. and says, well, she's going to get Social Security too, for example. Okay, well, that adds to the income side. And you'd go through essentially the same analysis. Yep. Uh, and the things that I look at are, you know, now that we have, you know, one one person looked at, now you look at a, a joint couple with a 12-year difference in age. Right. Now we've got new things to consider. Now we've got, let's say, Ben's retiring at 60, 65. He's got health care through Medicare at 65, but his wife will not. Uh, right. So she's going to have uh, the, the health care challenge, which has been sim- simply improved quite a bit through um, the Obamacare program where you can go into the marketplace and generally – buy pretty favorable plans that are no longer as extremely as expensive as they had been. Um, so that would be one issue is now there's extra cost of adding health care for quite a while for, for your wife who's uh, potentially retired alongside with you but much younger. And then there's this this joint life uh, at the end of life where let's say you know Ben passes away at 80, she's still 12 years his younger and has potentially a, a whole another 12 years plus uh, of living to fund. So you're not just funding one life. You might, uh, like a 30-year life in retirement, maybe it's like 45 years of retirement living because you right. have a, a much younger spouse. It's certainly going to impact allocation so also. It impacts how much you have to actually save on the front end. So maybe that one and a quarter million is now bumped up quite a bit because we want to try to make sure that if, I, if I'm Ben and, and I pass away at an early age, I still have substantial resources for my wife to continue living in a comfortable lifestyle after I'm gone. But suppose then we're just the jointly, they have 35,000 showing up. Okay, so now they need 40. From Social Security, you're saying? Social Security, yep. so now they need 40,000. So it's still <clears throat> it's still a million dollars. So my guess would be, and I don't think we'd be far off, that we would tell you that you probably ought to be walking into retirement with, in that case, 
uh, certainly a minimum of a million dollars, and you probably it'll probably be closer to your million two fifty. Yeah. That's 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 yeah. kind of that the, makes the that other intuitive. Right? Yeah. The the only question is is his wife going to continue to work for a while? That's where I mean it's impossible to answer this. I think for for some people, guys, it's I don't know if it's ten million dollars or fifty thousand dollars. Well, it's not those. And I don't know if it's a million or a million three, but it's in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's not two million. Now, if he says we're living on six figures, mm-hmm. now we got a different, different number. So now, yeah. if we're living on a hundred, and we have, uh, so let's just do it quickly. We got hundred, and we have thirty-five thousand of some income source. Six, then I need sixty-five thousand a year, and let's just use your number four percent. Uh, I did it wrong. Uh, what did I say we needed? 65,000. 60, so then you need 1.6. So now you're a million six and a quarter, million yep. six. So you can see that. So add your income streams up. It's, and, if the, and, and that's if they're inflation adjusted. If it's a fixed pension, you probably got to reduce that. So if I had a pension that was 3000 a month from the laborers union and it's fixed, I'd say, oh, we'll treat that like 2000 a month from a real real capacity so add your income streams figure out what that's going to be this is just rough and then figure out the gap in dollars you know of income and then divide that by four to four and a half percent and that's going to get you really close to probably what i'm going to tell you you're going to need i don't know if that helps people or confuses them but but you know you've seen me do the back of the envelope thing a number of times and each one's a little bit different because i can quickly adjust my brain from a 75-year-old couple versus a 55-year-old couple. But for a 60-year-old couple, I think we're in the neighborhood. I think I think he's going to find out that it's a pretty big number. And I think anybody who has kind of like these more, I don't want to call them challenging things to consider, just more nuanced right. items to consider in retirement, you're, you know, if anyone's well-suited to just at least have a conversation with an advisor, it's somebody who's got to think about these dual lifetimes and, and quite a big difference in living expectations. There's a lot of variables that could make your head explode. Yeah. But... When you're used to deep, I, I look at what we do as kind of a foreign language. It's one that we're very fluent in, um, and it takes a long time to to become fluent. I think in, in any language, and there there's so many very you know. And what <laughs> there's just a lot of numbers we don't know yet. When are we going to die? When are we going to become? Uh, when is our health span going to wear down? What are our returns going to be? What's inflation going to be? These are all unknowns, what we call random variables, but that's a fancy name. I like to just call them numbers we don't know yet. So it takes good simulation uh, and to come up with some reasonably sensible, targeted ideas. Yep. And, and sadly, that's the best anybody can do is just practicing, you know, certainty under uncertainty. You know, you can't be certain about anything. Right. You know, we're trying to be, you know, practice rationality under uncertainty. Yep. And uh, it's best not just to throw up your hands and just start you know, saying, well, it's nobody can know. You, what you have to come up with is, is sensible guidelines and know where, as, as I wrote in my most recent column, I think retirement is if this, then that. You just have to know, okay, if, if returns are better than we thought, what do we do? If they're a little bit worse than we thought, what do we do? That's the part that can make a person's head explode, and I yeah. think that's where a financial advisor can really be yeah. helpful. There's one other moving part, too, that you may decide that uh, – your hundred thousand uh, dollar 
uh, lifestyle is worth sacrificing to be able to retire. So maybe you can cut back at, at, at that end. So there are all kinds of things. For, There's a lot of trade-offs. So re- going into retirement is just a series of trade-offs. Uh, what's my allocation going to be? Well, there's benefits to being higher stock market allocation and there's benefits to being lower. Uh, so we're always, we're never re- getting rid of risk. We're always transforming risk. But there's, you're right, Fred, there are so many different trade-offs. That's why I try to tell people, don't, don't lock, let your left side of your brain lock you into a certain decision. Um, give yourself permission to say, oh, what about this? And what about that? Because most people going into retirement, they can't tell you what their retirement goals are. And so at least if you can start fencing things in, once we can begin fencing things in and start guessing a little closer, then what we can do is give people, here's the possibility as we see it. Here's the big picture possibility. Now let's talk about trade-offs and how we might manage that. So I think goals come from possibility first. If you, like, if, if I told, if you said, Paul, can I retire? And what do you think I can say? I say, well, I think it's, it's, uh, 6,000 a month. Okay. It's not 10. It's not 15. And now you may say, well, what if I retire a couple years earlier or a couple years later? And so then now we price in all these decisions and tell you the, what it brings to you and what it takes away. You know, retiring early is probably some form of takeaway, but maybe, maybe the cottage that you were, determined to buy you know five years from now for five hundred thousand maybe that's 350 mm-hmm. and there's all these little trade-offs with these levers that we can pull and i think it's very helpful and i think it's about the only way you can approach it and i love when a client will ask me you know can i retire now and i'll run the analysis i'll say yeah you can here's your new lifestyle <laughs> oh i thought i wanted to retire guess what i value working for that extra income and it just gives them that that i'm taking my mind off the hook i know the impact well, that's it, guys. Uh, again, thanks WDWS for accommodating us today, and I wish everybody a glorious and healthy and safe, above all safe, 2022, and Happy New Year. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On the Money here on DWS, paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. You can join Paul on the second and fourth Tuesdays of each month here on News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM. The views expressed in this program were those of the host and the guests, and not necessarily those of the station. You're listening to News Talk 1400 and 93.9 FM WDWS Champaign-Urbana, a Champaign multimedia group station.